you need to learn how to think and you need to learn about um, liberal democracy and Western civilization and the classics and Shakespeare and all of these things that sort of teach us how, how to think, how to be rational and how to be good citizens and, and Western civilization. Welcome back to Leading Matters. Another departure for us today. We're going to be speaking to Matt Lewis. He is the author of Too Dumb to Fail, How the GOP Betrayed the Reagan Revolution to Win Elections and How It Can Reclaim Its Conservative Roots. It's a departure because I've never really waded into politics before. I try to hold my political leanings close to the vest. Um, so, you know, I, I, I really don't like to... There was once upon a time... Actually, let me, let me kind of give you the backstory. Big reason why I asked Madam to the show is because early in my career, probably around the 2000s, I would get heavily involved in political discussion at work, and it was kind of a playful thing. But you know, I learned over time that it's just a, a failing proposition. As playful as it, it might be, as kind of fun and jocular as it, you might try to keep it. It it just doesn't, especially in today's climate, it's just not a, a wise move. Um, but my frustration with politics has grown over that time as well because I. I see the way that our our local, our state, our federal government operates should be a very intimate, detailed discussion and decision over how these policies impact lives. And it rarely becomes that. It always becomes a vitriol-filled shout fest. Uh, and, and I would look, I'll be candid, more so on, on the right side of the political hemisphere, and I think many would probably agree with that. But what Matt K. Lewis has done here is he's written a book decidedly targeted to the right side of the political spectrum to challenge those that uh, lean towards conservatism to understand the intellectual roots and to get back to those roots. And he really makes a great case for it. And in fact, so, so what, does this, what does that have to do with leading matters? Well, a couple of things. I think what you're going to find here is a case study for failed leadership. You know, he starts with the Reagan presidency, and he calls that the high watermark for conservative ideals in the country. He goes back and he talks about uh, Goldwater and, and how um, that kind of paved the way for Reagan to be possible. So it, it gives a little bit of the history and the backstory, but then it talks about the decline of the conservative thoughts and ideas since Reagan left office, some of which he actually lays at the feet of Ronald Reagan himself uh, for kind of playing this you know dumb cowboy type of character because it benefited him at the time. So it's a fascinating read from the perspective of how I need to care about the nuance and the communication and the underlying uh, message of how I'm leading. So, look, if for no other reason, listen to this interview with that in mind, because I guarantee you're going to find somewhere, something within your, how you're conducting your own little area of the business, how you're managing your team, how you're leading your company that you can improve upon. But beyond that, I think it's a, I would challenge, especially if you lean on the left side of politics here, to pick up Matt's book because, look, there's few books out there that actually challenge our intellectual thought. And Matt goes back as far as Aristotle, believe it or not, uh, and kind of progresses all the way up to Reagan through that history of, of where it is. So it challenges your thought here. He talks about, that was a little clip in the beginning, he talks about the importance of liberal arts education, which I think doesn't get, look, we all hear about STEM. He, he mentions STEM as well, and that's certainly important. But, you know, gone are the days where 
a classically trained liberal arts student is valued in this country. So I think it's an important book. Uh, I plan to send it to some of my left-leaning friends because I you know, would love to hear what their thoughts are. So sit back and enjoy it. I think you're going to um, really get a lot out of a different perspective, a perspective that perhaps you don't hear often. I think it's going to challenge your thought. And remember, there's, you know, regardless of, of where your political leanings might be, I, I guarantee that you're going to find a good applicable takeaway here that you could use in your day day to day with how you're managing your teams, how you're, um, you know, gaining consensus, how you're diving into the reason why we need to do something. I mean, that right there, I think, is, a, is an excellent point. You know, sometimes we take for granted that we lead the charge, uh, but we want to talk in sound bites to our own teams and our own companies. Well, we, we can't do that. We have to invest in the meaning and the purpose behind what we're doing. And I think that's what you're going to find in this interview with Matt Lewis, the author of Too Dumb to Fail, How the GOP Betrayed the Reagan Revolution to Win Elections and How It Can Reclaim Its Conservative Roots. Enjoy. My guest today is Matt Lewis, and he just released a book. It's called Too Dumb to Fail, How the GOP Betrayed the Reagan Revolution to Win Elections, and in parentheses, and how it can reclaim its conservative roots. Uh, now, Matt is a senior contributor for The Daily Caller. He's a contributing editor at TheWeek.com and a frequent columnist at The Daily Beast, as well as Telegraph UK. He also records a weekly podcast himself called Matt Lewis in the News. Business Insider listed Matt as one of the 50 pundits you need to pay attention to, and in 2012, the American Conservative Union honored Matt as their CPAC Blogger of the Year. So quite an excellent list of credentials. Matt, thanks so much for joining me on Leading Matters. Hey, thank you, Joel. Good to be here. Great. So listen, let's jump right in. As I was saying before we started the recording, I, I absolutely love the book. And, you know, it's such an excellent look at not only the history and the evolving and the quickening troubles of the GOP, but in my opinion, it reads almost like a call to action for not just politicians, but really for anyone that cares about what conservatism is. So my, my question is, did you write it with that intention to be kind of like a educate the masses call to action here? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, I think that there are sort of multiple goals that you have when you write a book. And so, I mean, I wanted the book to be an important book and to be appreciated by intellectuals and opinion leaders. And so far that has happened. I've been very proud of that. But I also wanted it to be a book that really anybody could pick up and digest and comprehend. And lastly, I wanted it to be a book that actually made a difference. I am a conservative and I think that there's a problem with the dumbing down of the Republican Party, and I really want to change that. And so, um, you know, the book's sort of divided into different parts. You know, the narrative is number one, establish that in fact conservatism did start out as a thoughtful intellectual philosophy. And I go through from Aristotle to Edmund Burke to Reagan, sort of documenting and telling that history, that story. Then the middle part of the book talks about the dumbing down that has taken place, and it goes into you know, historically, why did that happen, um, and even mo in modern times, uh, sort of documenting the dumbing down, the problem. And then the last part of the book is really my way forward and the recipe to get back uh, to a real intellectual, smart conservatism that could win the 21st century. And in that part of the book, I actually lay out sort of a macro vision, but then I really drill down on what each of us can do, de depending on what you are, if you're an activist, if you're a candidate, if you're a strategist, or if you're just a regular citizen, what can you do to help fix this problem? Yeah, well, look, that came through loud and clear. I really like that. And that's why, you know, I, I 
wanted to have you on the show because I think it impacts, look, if, if we care about these things and, and I'll get to some of the details in a second, but we ought to live them out, right, and, and, and be intellectually curious. So, look, with that in mind, let me let me run this by. It's a little bit of a meandering thought here, but let me get the thought out, and I'll be interested to see what you have to say. Last year, I had a guy by the name of Scott Monty on my show. Now, he was the global digital communications lead at Ford Motor Companies for many years. He's on his own now as a consultant. But he's a really interesting guy. His major was actually in classic uh, civilization. And if you visit his site, he's, like I said, he's now a consultant. You'll see quotes from Cicero, like right on the page. Mm-hmm. And I bring that up because in the opening pages of Two Dumb to Fail, as you mentioned, you walk the reader through the history of conservatism. You start with, like you said, you start with Aristotle. You bring Aquinas in there. You compare and contrast Edmund Burke and Thomas Paine. I think you even drop a Chester, Chesterton reference in there. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it struck me ha- – you know, I, look, I, I know a lot of these, these folks, and but I, I was wondering how many people, say, under the age of 35 that pay passing attention to these things are actually going to be familiar with all these men? And do you think that part of the ailment here is that more liberally trained aspect of our education, and I mean liberal in the, in the traditional sense, is simply just not part of the average American's education experience? Yeah, I think that's a problem. Uh, it's funny you bring that up. I just literally yesterday took my uh... – my little boy to uh, an interview at a school we're going to hope to get him into that has this classical liberal education. They actually start learning Latin at this school. And I think it's so important not just to learn, you know, we always hear about science, you know, the STEM, uh, you know, uh, classes and and the importance of like science and engineering and things like that and technology. But really, you need to learn how to think and you need to learn about um, liberal democracy and Western civilization and the classics and Shakespeare and all of these things that sort of teach us how, how to think, how to be rational and how to be good citizens and, and Western civilization. Um, and so one of the things I really hope that this book does is, um, is find a way to teach conservatives some of that intellectual, that very rich intellectual and philosophical tradition and to do it in a way that isn't too intimidating, um, but to do it in a way that puts in context where we are today. And I really come at this from a, an interesting angle because I'm the kind of person, you know, my dad was a prison guard and I'm from a really rural part of Western Maryland. And I was just a sort of an instinctual conservative. I mean, I was a conservative because I believed in pro-life and low taxes and a strong national defense. And then I had to like, at some point, Um, once I started reading and learning, I had to go back and I don't want to say reverse engineer, but I had to like really say, am I really a conservative or is this just something that my parents taught me to be? Um, or is this just because I'm, you know, a white kid from a rural area? And I went back and started really learning about what conservatism really is. And I think it's so important for us to do that. It's important to have, to be intellectually honest and to have a coherent, philosophical worldview. And if you don't have that, you're like, your house is built on the sand, you know, your house, you need to build our house on the rocks and you need to sort of know why you believe, why you uh, have value, why you value the, the values or the virtues that you, that you hold in high esteem. And if you don't have that, then I think really, um, you know, you haven't done the work you need to do 
to be an educated citizen and an informed voter. Yeah, no, I, I definitely appreciate that. And again, I think that comes through pretty clear. And I like that idea of kind of reverse engineering it, right? Because, you know, same thing. I, I, I grew up in a, a you know upper middle class kind of family. My dad was a, a blue collar guy and we were just naturally kind of conservative, you know, so I kind of had the same experience, right? But listen, as you were speaking there, I want to talk about it because one of the, you didn't touch on this, at least I don't, I don't remember reading it, but I, an, a, uh, an issue that, frustrates me with the way our political leaders skirt this more intellectual discussion is is this is this idea of common core right because and let me give you, let me give some backstory so i have young children and you know they're third second in kindergarten and our school uses common core and the math i appreciate exactly what it's trying to do right as a matter of fact i think it's a smart intelligent way to reframe the way that we're teaching our children how to conceptualize math right but and the discussion is really more of an ideological, hey, we don't want the government to be involved in education because then they'll mandate and they'll doctrinate our children, right? But but the discussion never gets to that point, right? You, nobody knows why they – from my perspective anyway, nobody knows why they're against Common Core, what the good things might be about it, the concepts that are being taught. And politicians only use it as like this wedge issue to, to gin up outrage. I mean is that do – you, do you agree with that? Yeah, and I think this is part of the – part of the problem that I see in politics today and the dumbing down. Um, okay, so on one hand, I think that we need to be open-minded about the possibility that there's a better way to teach math or whatever. I'm not saying Common Core is the better way, but there may be a, a way you mentioned conceptually. Rather than sort of rote memorization, there may be ways to make um, math mean more to kids and for them to, to put it into, con into a larger context. Um, and that may be a very good and noble, um, you know, endeavor. It could also be the case, though, that, you know, politically speaking, Common Core uh, is problematic because, you know, there were strings attached. Uh, I think the Obama administration, you know, tried to, um, you know, use grants and, and uh, you know, pen, sort of sticks and carrots to, uh, to get states to comply. Um, and so really, I think the issue is, is somewhat complex and nuanced. And um, I I'm, I'm, think I'm just sort of like marginally against Common Core, but I don't, I don't probably think it's like the – I don't think it's like literally trying to indoctrinate kids into liberalism. I just think it's probably not a great idea. But as you noted, that's not where the debate or the discussion is. Like a lot of people are reflexively against it because the memo has gone out that if you are a conservative – you have to be against it because this is the devil and it's liberal indoctrination. And um, that's that's not the case. That is um, that's simplistic at best and, you know, fear mongering, certainly. So, yeah. And this is really indicative of, frankly, the state of a lot of our public policy debates. Um, I think, you know, I would I would vote against Common Core. And yet I think that, like, a lot of the people who are on my side on that issue have a really like. Mis, you know they've really they misunderstand it, and I think they, um, they they have sort of ascribed um, the worst possible motives to uh, to it. When frankly, I think you know probably there were some you know noble reasons why you know initially states voluntarily wanted to um, you know wanted to have this this system in place. Yeah, no, I, it's interesting because I think that's that's a big thing I liked about the book is that these nuanced, detailed debates just 
don't seem to happen. And, you know, as I was reading it, I was going to ask you if you're a fan of, of Ross Douthitz, but I was happy to see you actually had a, a nice little couple pages on Ross there. And for those of you who don't know, Ross is an opinion writer for the New York Times. And, uh, you know, you mentioned him as someone that really exposes the average New York Times reader to, you know, smart Christian conservative worldviews. And he does so in a very, like, I think his work is phenomenal, right? Because he does, he's unapologetic. He's not shrill. He's just really discusses you know the, the issues at hand in a way that we just talked about common core right so i'm curious were, were you paying attention and i'm kind of putting you on the spot were you paying attention at all to his coverage of the catholic bishop synod on the family no because i was so wrapped up when that was happening i was in the middle of this book and i basically um had to put on blinders and say i'm only in conservative republican you know 2016 world or edmund you know even if it's going to be history it's going to have to be history that's relevant to the book. So I kind of missed that debate. I know it was controversial. Um, I will say this, though, about Ross and it, sort of adding to what you what you said, you know, it's it's easy to sort of like heap praise on, you know, Rush Limbaugh and Ann Coulter and, and a lot of conservatives love them because they speak truth to power. But if you think about it, a lot of times they're sort of playing home games. They're they're preaching to the choir and it doesn't take that much courage to tell people who already like you what they want to hear. I think in terms of actually um, changing the culture and actually persuading people who don't know they're conservative, that conservative ideas are not crazy, I think somebody like Ross Douthit, and there are others like Arthur Brooks and David Brooks, um, to maybe to a lesser degree, um, they they probably don't get the credit they deserve. You know, conservatives sometimes think that they're not tough enough um, or that they're, you know, selling out because they're in The New York Times. But, I mean, you could make a really good argument that they are exposing thoughtful, coherent, eloquent conservative ideas to a huge population of people who might otherwise never come into contact with those ideas and otherwise might think that conservatism is like simply something you believe in if you look like Boss Hog and ride around in a truck with a rebel flag, <laughs> you know, hanging up in the back. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that, right? Because I um he he definitely he had a post a couple weeks ago about right after the panel endorsement of Trump and he captured exactly and I'm not sure if you read it, but he captured exactly the trajectory, the rise and the fall and her star kind of flaming out and why conservatives you know, rallied around her. I thought he really, oh, yeah. he explained it really well. I almost wanted to share it with people because sometimes I'm embarrassed to say in 2008 that I, I was supportive of Sarah Palin as a, as a, but she, she, I mean, I think she changed also. I mean, I was at the, uh, the convention in 2008 when she gave that speech and it's one of the best political speeches I've ever heard. But I think Palin actually changed. I think she, you know, went rogue and got radicalized. I think that she was wounded by the attacks by the media, which in some cases were unfair. And I think, I mean, even her voice, has, she's become more screechy. Yeah, sure, you know yeah. All you holy rollers and rock and rollers. <laughs> I mean, it was like beat poetry. I think she's like, I think she's gone off the deep end. And I don't think that we, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't blame those of us who, who saw something in her. Um, I think, I think that, that something has changed in her over the last decade. No, I think that's, I think that's fair. So so listen, Matt, I want to switch gears a little bit. Now, I'm by trade I'm a marketing professional, and to me, politics is like the ultimate marketing case study. And and to that end, I also see that in your book Too Dumb to Fail, 
that the principles extrapolate very well beyond just politics. So, for instance, you talk about conservative immigrants, right, mm -hmm. and that the party risks losing its bearings if these so-called immigrants are not pop properly assimilated. So I, I, with that in mind, I have two questions. First, can you explain this notion of party immigrants? And secondly, isn't the idea of integrating newcomers an important part of you know, how we lead, no matter what, the, what we're leading? Absolutely. I think that um, – so I came up with this interesting analogy – and, you know, conservatives are always complaining about <laughs> immigration to America. And there's a legitimate worry about, you know, immigrants not assimilating. Um, I think that's a – like, I'm, I'm very pro-immigration, but I'm also very pro-assimilation. And if, if immigrants come, they bring all sorts of new energy and new ideas, and they can really, like, help a country – grow and inject it with ideas and entrepreneurship and all sorts of really great things. But if they if they don't assimilate, um, then eventually your country will change and lose some of the good things about your country. And I compare that to what happens to political parties and movements when new people join them. And that's happened in the Republican Party a lot. There are a lot of people uh, over the last couple of decades who have joined the Republican coalition who are not steeped in, you know, Burkean conservatism. And there's a good thing to this. They bring new energy and new ideas and they inflate the ranks of a party. And obviously politics is a game of addition. And if you want to win elections, it helps to have converts. But a lot of these folks have not been assimilated into conservatism. And so over time, they've actually changed what it means to be a conservative and what it means to be a Republican. And I think that, you know, there's a lot of examples of this. But the most obvious example would be if Donald Trump ends up becoming the nominee and you will have had all of these kind of working class white voters who are pretty liberal, sort of disaffected Democrats from places like Ohio. Um, and they all support policies like protectionism, for example, which in recent times has been more associated with liberal than conservative philosophy. And so – I think this is like an issue that ironically conservatives complain about immigrants not assimilating. But really, interestingly, um, this, this is having a big potentially negative impact on conservatism right now, this same exact phenomenon, what I call ideological immigrants. Now, that's, you know, it's, it's, that's why it was fascinating to read it, right, because I certainly agree with you. But also I was like, well, gee, that is a tall, it's, there's so many tall tasks in the book. That this one in particular, like who is minding the store to take on the responsibility of, of, of ensuring that a path to assimilation for these so-called party immigrants actually happens? Right. And you've had – I mean we've had different waves of these party immigrants. You know, you obviously had the, the neocon wave where Jewish intellectuals who had been liberals joined the Republican fold and changed what it means to be a conservative and a Republican in some ways good and maybe in some ways bad. You had waves of evangelicals who had been sort of out of the political system and, and somewhat apathetic who came along and helped Reagan get elected. And in many ways, these evangelicals helped conservatism, but they also, I think, helped dumb it down. And then I think after 9-11, you had all of these waves of people who were really, you know, kind of secular liberals who woke up and suddenly realized that the American left wasn't capable of, because of political correctness and all sorts of things, 
that the American left wasn't capable of taking on uh, Islamist jihad. And so they be, they sort of became Republicans and conservatives, but they're not really conservatives. They're liberals who just happen to be afraid of terrorism. <laughs> yeah. um, and then, of course, you had uh, a, a revolt against the bailouts and a revolt against Obama. And so there's been this influx of people who um, have sort of joined the Republican coalition, but they – you know, it's not like they were reading like Edmund Burke and Hayek and Russell Kirk. I mean, they don't necessarily share a coherent conservative worldview. And then it comes down to, are there leaders who can sort of help police the right? I mean, I'm not suggesting there should be, you know, mass purges or anything like that. But are there people keeping things in check, keeping, uh, con- keeping conservatism from being tarnished? by unseemliness and, and, and pernicious activities. Um, are there people helping to assimilate new converts? Um, we don't want, you know, you don't necessarily want to take the new convert and put them behind the pulpit on day one, uh, to use a sort of religious analogy. Um, but yet we do that so often. We, we immediately baptize new converts and, and make them leaders so often, uh, put them on our cable TV shows and let them speak at Tea Party rallies when um, really they're not necessarily conservative. So this is a really, I don't know, I feel like I might be the only person who's ever, I'm sure someone else has had this idea, but this is one of the, there's a few things in the book that I think I've kind of cornered the market on, and and I think this might be one of them. Well, I certainly hope so, you know, because you, I'm going to move over into the media here because you lay some of this blame at the feet of the media. I mean, not all of it, but certainly some of it. And I'm curious what you think about the level of responsibility that the media has to drive ratings without, especially the conservative, so-called conservative media, without relying on this dumbing down of the discussion and making the the victim du jour the, the hero. I mean, do, do they have uh, culpability to you know elevate their game a little bit? Yeah, I think we all do. I mean, that's one of the messages of the book is that we all have a a responsibility um, to try to be adults and to make America a better country and and, and conservatism uh, to to sort of you know uphold our, our decency and our values. And even though there are perverse incentives, I mean, I have an incentive to say inflammatory things because it'll sell books and get me attention. And TV media folks have an incentive to, you know, if it bleeds, it leads kind of thing, you know. And and there's a political version of of if it bleeds, it leads. And it's, you know, let's show the fight between Donald Trump and Ted Cruz over and over and over again because that's – because fighting and, and, and that, that gets attention, that gets ratings. And so um, I, I think it is important that we kind of balance – now, look. The other thing I'll say, though, is as somebody who's a writer, you have to have a little showmanship. So what I'll do is I will write something that I believe in, but then you got to write a good title that's going to catch people's attention. So like anybody who wants to be successful or who wants to actually have a career, you're not going to be like completely pure. I mean, this isn't like we're, you know, writing something that that will be, um, you know, I, I don't know, like um, – like at a think tank per, per se. I mean, you have to inject a little showmanship, a little salesmanship. But the question is, like, what are your motives? And are you writing something or saying something you believe in 
and then finding a way to get people to pay attention to it? Or are you simply saying things because you know they will garner you personal attention and get people to pay attention. So I think it's about motives and, and not putting the cart ahead of the horse. Well, how do you balance that, right? Because your written word, I think it gives you more flexibility, right? But, you know, sometimes you're one of the four panelists on that split screen, you know? And how do you personally, you know, balance that? I think that it's important to um, check yourself before you wreck yourself. It, you know, when my, my dad used to tell me that, um, per, you know, practice doesn't make perfect perfect practice makes perfect. So if you're in baseball practice and you develop bad habits just for fun, you know, you're goofing around, then when you're under pressure and the heat of a game, you will revert to what you've been practicing. And my dad also, I mentioned he was a prison guard. He told me this story. Um, I can't corroborate it, but I, I have no reason to doubt that the story is true. Um, but this apparently this would have happened 25 or 30 years ago. But he, you know, he said that he used to have to qualify with um, with a pistol or whatever at the firing range, and he went to the same firing range that that real police officers went to. And he said that when they were at the firing range practicing, they would keep their bullets in their back pocket. And um, of course, in real life, you don't keep bullets in your back pocket. And my dad told me that one time there was a shootout. And they found a police officer who had run out of ammunition. And he, they found him dead with his hand in his back pocket looking for bullets, which, of course, were not there. And the point is, under duress, under pressure, under the lights of a TV camera, you will revert to who you really are uh, and what you, uh, what you practice. And so, honestly, for me, um, it, it's about—and everybody makes mistakes, and we, we all mess up, and none of us are perfect— but it's really about trying to um, be a balanced person, um, not to get caught up too much in politics or in being on TV, for example, um, and, uh, and to sort of be really, you know, deep down, care about America, care about the conservative cause. And then when you're under pressure, you will hopefully rise to the occasion and, and, and be responsible. Yeah, I, I get that. And and look, if you don't want to, I, as you're saying that, I had a thought because, uh, and if you don't want to answer it, that's fine. I'll completely appreciate it because I know you got to work with a lot of these folks. But I look, I, I watch Morning Joe. It's a nice little, uh, you know, indulgence in the morning as I'm getting ready. And sometimes I think they actually have production meetings before they get on the air. Say, so, okay, here's the story we're going to trumpet today. I mean, it almost seems that way because it seems so disingenuous to me. I mean, does that sort of thing happen where these media types are actually, you know, practicing a muscle memory that naturally. Uh, forces them into this, not exploitative, but this more sensational narrative in the morning? I would say that that's, of all the shows, that is probably one of the best shows in terms of like letting uh, things happen organically and letting people say what they really want to say, like not having an agenda. But what does bother me is I've been invited on shows before where they're trying to like set up a fight and they'll say, hey, Matt, we want someone who's going to say that Obama should be impeached. And then the message is, if you're willing to say that, they will invite you on. You can come on. And if you're not willing to say that, then they're going to go find somebody else who will. So I, that's the kind of thing that I don't like and that I think um, – I mean, to me, it's you, you should find like interesting, thoughtful people, have them on – 
And um, yeah, of course, you want to talk about the story of the day, like what story is leading the New York Times this morning. Um, but they should say what sort of what they want to say. And, um, and, 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 you know, Morning Joe, I think, um, is a show that I really like. Um, by the way, I'm now a, a CNN contributor. Uh, as of about a week ago. Oh, great. So you, you won't be seeing me. <laughs> be on Morning Joe anymore. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> Not for a while. Um, but I will say I think it's a great show. And um, that's of, of all the of all the like offenders, I, I would put them pretty low at the list of, of people who are kind of stoking narratives and controversy. Okay. Well, that's good. It's good to hear. Yeah. So, look, I want to I want to uh, come towards the end here. I got just two last questions for you. And the first is, look, when I read this, there's, you know, there's I'd love to share it with people that that maybe hold conservatism in disdain. Is this a good book for them? Do you think you should hand it to your liberal friends? Absolutely. I have been so happy with the response this has gotten. Um, it is like you – it's sort of been universally praised. I'm, I thought that like – I thought – actually I thought liberals might like it and they might cast me as a thought – as a good conservative, as a thoughtful conservative. But I feared that conservatives and republicans – who this book is really for might reflexively be angry with me because nobody wants to be told you have to eat your vegetables or nobody wants to be told like you have to lose a few pounds. Um, and that's kind of what the book does. You know, I make the argument if you, if you love something, you don't ignore its problems. You know, if you're a car aficionado, you do not ignore the pinging sound of your 65 Mustang. <laughs> yeah. You look under the hood immediately. And um, so I've actually been really pleasantly surprised that it's been pretty much universally praised by everybody on the right and the left. And um, it's I don't know. I feel really blessed that, uh, that I mean, the timing, of course, the timing. I, I could not have planned Donald Trump, <laughs> you know, and literally the week the book comes out, Sarah Palin endorses Donald Trump. <laughs> And so, yeah, it's almost perfect, right? Perfect yeah, promotional. I could for not you. have planned it. Yeah, that's great. So listen, la last picture here because I'm always seeking, trying to seek the optimism in, in dire situations. And look, it seems you paint a pretty bleak picture, right? So, and you certainly offer plenty of antidotes and how to to address the issues. But you know, because the situation is so dire, you know, give give us some ray of hope. Is is there hope? Oh, absolutely. I would say first of all, if you're a conservative or a Republican, despite all the the problems I lay out and in the book, um, Democrats have some big challenges right now, including the fact that it's really hard to win three presidential elections in a row, and that's what they need to do. And also given the fact that it's really hard to get a party to go backwards generationally, and that's what they're going to have to do. After the hope and change and charisma and excitement of Obama, they're going to have to ask voters to go backward generationally, uh, a bridge to the past, if you will back to a Hillary Clinton and all the baggage that 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 brings with it. And I also think that although there's a danger of a Republican Party becoming sort of a know nothing populist nationalist party of Donald Trump, there's an equally good chance that you could have a party that's like a Marco Rubio, Paul Ryan party that I think would be very optimistic, very solutions oriented very much uh, capable of winning 21st century Americans who don't know they're conservative yet. 
That's great. I love it. That's a great way to wrap it up. So I hope there's plenty of them out there. So listen, we've been talking to Matt K. Lewis, and he is the author of Too Dumb to Fail, How the GOP Betrayed the Reagan Revolution to Win Elections, and How It Can Reclaim Its Conservative Roots. He also is a writer for the Daily Beast. You can find him at theweek.com and his weekly podcast called Matt Lewis and the News. Matt, I can't thank you enough. I really appreciate the work. Keep it up, and uh, thank you for giving me so much time today. Thank you, Joel. Thank you.